Hello, and welcome back to the Urology Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Urology Care Foundation. On this episode, we had the honor of speaking with two guests on the topic of pheochromocytoma, or an adrenal gland tumor. Our first guest is Michael Campbell, a pheochromocytoma survivor who shares a powerful story of how he learned about his diagnosis and the journey he then had to take to fight for his life. Our second guest is Dr. Ben Ristow, a urologic oncologist at UConn Health in Connecticut and one of the doctors who ultimately helped to save Michael's life. Dr. Ristow talks about pheochromocytoma from a medical perspective and details what you should know. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for an Ask the Expert segment where Michael will get to ask Dr. Ristow some questions from a patient's perspective. So let's get started. Michael, welcome, and thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here. So can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, introducing yourself for our listeners? Sure. Thank you so much. I'm uh, 61 years old. I feel like I'm 12, but I'm actually 61. You know, I uh, work in the nonprofit sector. I'm the chief operating officer of the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, worked in the arts, culture, and heritage sector my whole life. My medical history is rather boring. The first time and only time I was in the hospital was for my tonsils when I was age four. And uh, as I recall, the hospital didn't really want me back after that. I wreaked a little bit of havoc uh, at that particular hospital. But uh, so I uh, have never experienced any kind of a major uh, medical illness. And so uh, uh, leading up to this was uh, not a lot of experience on my part. Great. Thank you. So we are here to talk about pheochromocytoma or pheo as we'll refer to it throughout um, this conversation. Michael, can you start by just kind of going into more detail with your story about how you first came to know this term? What symptoms, if any, did you have? How did you come to know that you had FIO? You know, I think it's probably important to start at the very beginning, which was probably about seven or eight years ago when I started to experience some kind of symptoms. Um, I wasn't sure what they were in terms of the explanation, but it turned out uh, back then I was, my heart was skipping a beat every once in a while, little arrhythmia, didn't really feel too much, but I remember seeking a doctor's advice, my primary care physician to say, hey, what's going on? This feels a little bit different. And uh, that went on for a good couple years. Uh, I was sent to a cardiologist and they hooked me up to all the wires and everything. And it turned out that uh, they found nothing, but yet it still would skip a beat every once in a while. As time went on, my heart would start to race at times for unexplained reasons. And even after a couple of years of that, I started to call those episodes uh, because we did not know what they were. Now, an interesting uh, factor in all of this was that I was also borderline with diabetes. And so, you know, I was talking to my primary care physician about maybe I was having too much sugar or something was making my heart race and all of that. And uh, after doing some tests, we determined that it did not seem to be related, but I wasn't totally sold on it. So we kept going. Everything came to a head this past summer 
when the symptoms seemed to get much worse, they started to get shakiness. People would say I would get pale during these episodes. And it seemed like I would suddenly run out of steam. And this would happen at work. And I could not find out what the trigger mechanism was for this. I, I had no clue until one night in the very beginning of July, when I woke up in crisis in the middle of the night, the symptoms were, uh, I was totally drenched in perspiration beyond what would be considered normal for a summer evening. Uh, my heart was just absolutely racing beyond control. And I also was, you know, had trouble concentrating and I knew I was in crisis. And that's when I turned to my wife in the middle of the night. And interestingly enough, two hours after my new health insurance had kicked in and said, I think something is very seriously wrong and I need to go to the hospital. That was my first ambulance ride. And it was all concern for my heart. And so they were administering my heart, EKG, all of that on the way to the hospital. And I ended up in the emergency room at uh, University of Connecticut Health. And uh, that's when the adventure began. After that, there was a lot of cardiac tests. You know, they inserted a catheter into my heart, double checked everything. And basically after being in the hospital for three days, um, there was no uh, diagnosis other than just, they think it's my heart, but everything seemed to be normal. I was having a conversation with uh, Dr. Robert Nardino in my room, a hospital room, and I said, let's talk about this a little bit more in detail as to what I was experiencing. And he actively listened to me. Um, we had a wonderful conversation and I saw his face light up uh, the top part of his face because we were all wearing masks, of course. And he said, let's try something. It has not proven positive in the 30 plus years I've been a medical doctor, but my description was this rush of adrenaline and this very strange, odd sensation, um, uh, feelings of doom, uh, things like that. And he ordered a 24-hour urine study, and I was about to be released from the hospital early. And he said, you want to continue doing it? If you do, you're going to have to stay longer. I said, I'll stay longer. And those decisions, that conversation pretty much changed everything for me because the urine study came back. He picked up the phone after, because it takes a couple of days, called me, said, I think I know what this is. And I need to refer you to uh, Dr. B. Tendler, uh, also of UConn, endocrinologist, amazing, amazing woman. And he said, she's waiting for you right now. Go into the hospital and see her. It was a Friday night. And that's when I first heard the word pheochromocytoma. Wow, that's incredible. So just to kind of, you know, go back through that. So it seems like it was definitely probably a roller coaster of emotions from thinking that it might've just been something with your heart, your heart skipping a beat every now and then. And you said that was what, like seven, eight years ago when that first started. So what was that like emotionally, mentally going through those years, trying to figure out, you know, what this could be to all of a sudden this, you know, huge event happens. And then you ultimately find out that you have FIO. 
Well, it's probably just as you would think it would be. There was a certain amount of relief in at least getting a diagnosis that, you know, I wasn't, you know, imagining things because I had to learn to live with these episodes for several years. Um, it's tough to go through an episode when you're in a business meeting or traveling on an airplane and you can feel that something is wrong, but it wasn't diagnosed. So the first emotion was, oh my goodness, thank goodness, we know what it is. The second um, emotion was, good Lord, what is this? I've never heard of it before and I can't even pronounce it. So I decided to do some quick research. Uh, I contacted the FIO Para Alliance, um, which seems to be the uh, leader in understanding all of this. I did not exactly know what I was reading, but it, it gave me great comfort. The rest of the story is really painful because I knew what this was, but then the pheochromocytoma or the tumor decided to attack me. And uh, that could have been from a bleed or something. And I ended up back into the hospital having just been released with blood pressure in the 200s. And uh, that's when the adventure began. I, I met the esteemed Dr. Ristow, who was such great comfort to me. Uh, but I went through 26 hours of these attacks uh, every eight to 10 minutes towards the end of those attacks in the ICU. I really wasn't quite sure if I was going to make it. I could feel my body and my mind slipping away because um, my bodily systems were actually going haywire with very, very high blood pressure. But luckily, Dr. Ristow, Dr. Uh, Tendler were there and uh, they basically saved my life by not only doing the surgery eventually, uh, but also through a drug, I think it's called the tyrosine, uh, which they actually brought in from Philadelphia, which is used for FIOs. Uh, I had to look it up and the closest place to get it was in Philadelphia. One of the doctors even said that she would get in the car and go get it and bring it back because um, I was not going to make it. I could feel that my body was starting to say that I just didn't have the stamina to get through the pain and the unbelievable sensations that I was feeling. So um, that's when I met Dr. Ristow. And then my life included surgery and uh, recovery and all of that, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. So what was the time span between when you were first in the hospital and first learning of this term and kind of, you know, being diagnosed to this 26 hour period where, you know, you really were fighting for your life? It was really just a matter of days. Oh, wow. um, I, had, I had been released from the hospital. I had spent three days in the hospital. I was sent home with some medications to help stabilize. One of the symptoms of FIO is extremely high blood pressure. Um, when, when these attacks happen, the blood pressure can go off the charts. And interestingly enough, I discovered um, because of the more severe nature of them that that's what was happening when I was having my episodes a year or two before that my blood pressure was probably going up, uh, but I didn't know that. And how would you know? So it was only a few days and I was actually sitting watching television with my amazing wife and I could feel the episodes coming on. I had just purchased a blood pressure cuff 
And uh, I called Dr. Tendler and told her what the number was. It was 260 over, I think it was 100, 110. And she said, come into the hospital right now. And at that point, just several days after being released, uh, that's when the attacks happened. And I ended up in the ICU and ultimately in the hospital for over a month. Wow. So can you talk a little bit more about, you said that you had to have surgery and can you talk about that process as well as kind of the treatment and what you experienced following that surgery? I sure can. You know, the, the, the medications that you take, uh, and, and forgive me, I'm not exactly sure what they're called, but um, some of them, uh, or at least um, one of them that I took was, was pretty heavy duty alpha blocker, beta blocker. I could feel my body was sort of forced into a level uh, nature where, you know, a loud noise would go off in the room and I would casually sort of look at it like, well, who cares, you know. I was sort of dulled down trying to get me stabilized um, for surgery. That was the time that I used to do uh, research into pheochromocytoma and what it all meant through the uh, Pheopara Alliance and uh, discussed things with my wife about treatment and all of that. But ultimately, the thing that was the, of most comfort to me, of the, the most information I received uh, was from my doctor, Dr. Ristow. And his confidence, his knowledge, his ability to explain things in a way that um, you know, he understood my diminished capacity at the time. Um, and he was able to give me a real, a, a wide angle on all of this. Uh, in a way, I was made to feel very special because I had this and it was extremely unusual. And so his, his calming nature and his confidence and understanding of this particular disease uh, helped me to feel somewhat at ease because of the fact that this disease was special and that I was going to be okay. And uh, that really gave me the strength to get through some of the, um, the, unfortunately, the torturous attacks that were stabilized once the metyrosine got into town. And then they put me on additional drugs that helped keep me level, all in preparation for the actual surgery itself. And Dr. Ristow was very detailed in what was going to happen, what the options were, and all of that. And uh, that, of course, through the educational component that he supplied me was, you know, one of the main reasons why I felt that I could get through this. The other thing, too, is, and I, I have to bring this up, is the caregiver aspect of, of being married to someone who is extraordinary, you know, if, uh, if anyone is ever going to get married, you should need to marry up. That's the important thing, because uh, I married someone who was just extraordinary, and um, she processed a lot of the information and then translated it back to me in terms that I could understand being heavily sedated and in a hospital, which I had never been in. You know, there was surgery that was scheduled, and unfortunately, that did not take place because pheos tend to come alive when you are under anesthesia. And so I went under anticipating waking up that everything was going to be changed. And unfortunately, I uh, woke up intubated as well as uh, hearing that it had not taken place, which meant I had to stabilize again for another week, week and a half. And then the second surgery took place. Um, but all during this time, Dr. Ristow was there. He was there every single day. 
always answering my questions. He and his team were so incredibly gracious with their time. They actively listened to what was happening and gave me the strength and stamina to get through to the second surgery, which was miraculous uh, because I woke up and then two days after this complex and very precarious surgery, I went home. So it was a very happy ending and all thanks to Dr. Listow. It's incredible to hear just the amount of support that you had, both from a, a personal um, level with your wife, as well as the, the doctors and Dr. Estelle, who, you know, kind of helped you through, you know, this, this scary unknown time for you. So after you get home from your, your second surgery, what was that process and what kind of came next for you? Well, it was all about recovery. I had never had, you know, a advanced medical procedure done at all. So it was all new to me. I knew that it was before I was in Dr. Ristow's hand, Dr. Tendler's hands. But I knew at that point it was up to me now. And uh, I had given my trust and my, my um, great confidence in Dr. Ristow, but now he was passing it off to me and I had to get better. And so um, what that meant was, you know, doing everything that I needed to do in order to get better. Luckily, the surgery that he was able to do was robotic. So the um, invasive nature of scars and all of that um, was uh, minimal. But, you know, I could tell that he had had his hands inside my abdomen and it needed a little bit of time. Um, the other thing that was difficult and challenging was that I had been in the hospital for so long that walking was a struggle. I had to mentally concentrate to do basic functions like walking and eating and things like that uh, because I was also coming off all of these drugs uh, that were used in preparation for the surgery and then they stopped. And so it was almost like a reawakening where I started to discover my mental capacity getting better and uh, that my physical nature of my um, self-being was getting stronger and stronger. But all along the way, Dr. Ristow was there and uh, Dr. Tendler as well. And um, within four weeks of being released from the hospital, I was back to work. And uh, that now is six months from now. And uh, I'm not running marathons yet. But, uh, you know, I'm doing much, much better. And uh, now it, it's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon to look back at all of this with a, with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and to be able to comment on it and hopefully help others who, who experience this incredible challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So that was going to be um, something else I wanted to ask you was how, you know, how are you feeling today? Are, are there things that you have to kind of keep in mind in terms of monitoring your health moving forward? Do you still have to go for checkups or, or anything or kind of where are you at now? Yeah, you know, it takes a long time to recover from this. Um, the first couple of weeks, I call it Theo fog. Um, I was definitely trying to, you know, get my mental capacity back in shape. Um, but as time went on and I didn't have to concentrate on how to walk again, which was a, an interesting thing. You know, right now, uh, things are really great. I'm not 100% recovered, but I'm almost there. 
the follow-up, I have to see Dr. Tendler, uh, endocrinologist, and of course, Dr. Ristow as well. But you know what? They're both such dear, important people in my life that I would insist on going to see them even if they said I didn't need to anymore. So it, it's been a wonderful experience to have Dr. Ristow monitor, uh, which I need to do every so often and will probably continue to do. But they also were uh, instrumental in ensuring several aspects of pheochromocytoma that uh, you have to be careful of, like uh, genetic testing and things like that, which is a burgeoning uh, aspect of pheos, as well as getting a full scan to make sure there are no others in your body and things like that. So it, it's been a long, challenging road back, but you know, when you think about where I was in the ICU with a blood pressure of 300 over 110, with a nurse on each arm trying to control that out of control situation uh, with these attacks to where I am today, back to work, back with my family, planning trips again, and having very, very little after surgery, you know, things to worry about. Wow. Well, we are very thankful that you are here to share your story with others. And, you know, we've talked about Dr. Ristow throughout your, your story, and we're going to bring him on in a minute to break down uh, what FIO is exactly. But before we um, end on your note, I wanted to ask if there was any advice that you have for other patients who have FIO or caretakers, or what would you like to share with them based on the experience that you've gone through? You know, rare diseases are isolating. Uh, they can make you feel as if you are literally the only one who has one, uh, especially with a FIO. It's something that, you know, most people have not heard about. It affects, you know, not many people. Um, so having doctors that actively listen to you, you know, and you can tell when you have one because you can see the, the mechanisms work through diagnosis and treatment and all of that actually in their faces, uh, which is a remarkable thing to witness. The, the other thing is, is that when you do research on a rare disease like FIO, be very careful where you go for information. It is so easy to fall into the rabbit hole of social media, uh, where you will see a lot of information there from people who are not medical doctors who will offer advice and things uh, in terms of being diagnosed or undiagnosed, prognosis and all of that. And so, you know, make sure you go right to a very well-known and confirmed source of information, primarily that is your doctor or doctors. In my case, throughout my uh, FIO adventure, I think I had well over 150 doctors and nurses uh, during my time. Um, and every single one of them had something to offer me in terms of treatment in my emotional um, health, as well as my physical health. And so listen to the people around you uh, who are professional. And uh, I think if you do that, actively listen yourself, have a caregiver who writes things down, who will do research for you as well. Uh, I was blessed to have that as well. And if you do feel isolated and alone, you can take care of that by finding either other people who have what you have, have family members come in, your caregiver and you know, make sure that you have your support system around you to be able to take whatever FIO has 
to send to you. Great, thank you. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sh- being here and, and sharing your story with us. Um, we're so thankful to have you on the podcast. Thank you, it's a real pleasure. So we're now going to bring in Dr. Ristau to talk a little bit more of the medical side of pheochromocytoma. Um, so Dr. Ristau, welcome, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, Simone. Thanks to you and to the Urology Care Foundation uh, for giving Michael and I an opportunity to talk a little bit about pheochromocytoma. So can you start by giving a little bit more information about your background and the experience you've had working with patients who have pheo? So I am a urologic oncologist. Um, I practice at UConn Health in Farmington, Connecticut. Throughout uh, my training, I've, I've always sort of had an interest in adrenal surgery. Um, so I, I did a, a urology residency in Pittsburgh where I had an opportunity to work both with some endocrine surgeons um, as well as um, doing some adrenal surgery with the urologists. Um, and then I went on to an oncology fellowship at, at Fox Chase Cancer Center where uh, Dr. Alex Kudikoff um, has a special interest in uh, adrenal gland pathology and adrenal surgery. He actually authors one of the major book chapters in the urologic text about the adrenal gland. And so he really fostered um, an interest in me in, in adrenal pathology and adrenal surgery. And as it turned out, when I came to UConn, um, there already was a very well-established uh, endocrinology or endocrine neoplasia team. Uh, and one of the things that they really focused on was uh, adrenal, the adrenal gland and adrenal surgery. And so I sort of walked into a situation uh, where uh, there, there was not a, a surgeon who really was very interested in uh, adrenal surgery, but yet there was a medical team uh, with uh, Dr. Tendler, who was mentioned before, uh, Dr. Carl Malkoff, Dr. Tarunia Videre, um, who are all very interested in um, working w- with patients who have adrenal disorders. Um, and so they're in, in a subset, obviously, as we'll talk about, of those patients do require surgery. Um, so that's sort of the background where I came from um, in terms of both my, my training in, in urology, as well as an, an interest in adrenal surgery. Great. Thank you. So pheochromocytoma is a big word. Uh, it's difficult to pronounce. And I can imagine if people are hearing they have this for the first time, um, it can be a bit scary. Um, so can you start by just breaking it down and explaining first what exactly this is? Of course. So the, the adrenal gland itself has two parts. One part is on the outside of the adrenal gland. It's referred to as the cortex. Um, and the inside part of the adrenal gland is referred to as the medulla. And the cortex uh, makes a number of different hormones. Some are responsible for managing salts and blood pressure in your body. Some are responsible for managing sugars in your body. Um, And there are actually some sex steroids that are made by the adrenal gland. But uh, the medulla is where um, the pheochromocytoma arises from. Um, And that, that part of the adrenal gland is responsible for I think the best way to think about it is the fight or flight type response. So something startles you and you get that rush of adrenaline, that's your, that's your adrenal uh, medulla kicking in. Um, And so it secretes adrenaline and noradrenaline and a tumor there is, is 
called a pheochromocytoma. Um, it is a, it's a benign tumor in most cases, it's not a cancer, but uh, it is, uh, it obviously can cause uh, some problems uh, as we heard about because it does over secrete these fight or flight type hormones. Uh, and so the, the symptoms that, that Michael was experiencing are unfortunately classic for this type of tumor. Uh, the sort of flushing, uh, sweating, everyone, like kind of episodes, not constant, but these episodes, high blood pressure, headaches, um, that sort of feeling of doom, which you actually may be a little bit familiar with if you've ever had an adrenaline rush, you kind of get that, that feeling that happens as this excess hormone is secreted into the bloodstream. Okay. Wow. That was a great explanation. Thank you. Um, so Michael kind of touched on this being a rare type of, of tumor. It's not something that is super common. How common would you say that it is and what causes it? Who's most at risk for VO? It is a rare tumor. There are probably a few thousand new cases every year in the United States. So that sounds like a lot, but don't forget there are like 330 million people in the United States. So it's, it's actually not all that common. It most commonly occurs in the fourth and fifth decades of life. The majority these days are actually diagnosed incidentally on imaging studies that are done for other reasons. So you go to the ER with abdominal pain, you have a CAT scan, they see a tumor in the adrenal gland that gets worked up and um, so that's about 60 or 70% of the, the total diagnosis of pheochromocytoma actually comes in asymptomatic people who have imaging studies, MRIs or CAT scans done for other reasons. About another quarter of them or so um, are, are folks who do have symptoms uh, like the ones that Michael was describing. And one of the really tricky parts about it is that a lot of these symptoms, when they're described, are nonspecific and can be attributed to other more common causes. So heart palpitations, that's a pretty ubiquitous symptom for people over time. Um, pheochromocytoma doesn't come top of mind when you sort of think about that kind of thing. High blood pressure, Many, many people in the country have high blood pressure, has nothing to do with a, a pheochromocytoma. In fact, less than 1% of all, all people with high blood pressure are because of a pheochromocytoma. So, so that's a pretty rare cause of it. So a lot of the symptoms that you, you may attribute to uh, a pheochromocytoma really are not that easy to diagnose. And um, you know, kudos to, to Dr. Nardino for sort of sitting down with Michael and listening to him and, and sort of um, having a light bulb go off in his head, probably from something he learned in medical school and say, Let, hey, we should maybe check this out uh, because it's not, that's not an easy association to make at the point of care in, in hindsight, hindsight 2020, but, um, but at the point of care, not, not so easy. So symptomatic is about a quarter. And then the rest are, are often people who have uh, familial syndromes that, that, that cause hereditary pheochromocytoma. So and, and they're screened for, for these things. So um, the most, there are three most common ones. One is called von Hippel-Lindau syndrome. Uh, another is called multiple endocrine neoplasia type two. Um, and the third is neurofibromatosis type one. So those are, those are three sort of familial genetic conditions uh, that can predispose people to getting pheochromocytomas. Okay, thank you. 
So in terms of diagnosis and, and treatment, obviously, you know, a doctor would have to suspect that someone has this in order to, you know, properly diagnose that. But with someone's symptoms, if they're coming in with certain symptoms, how would a doctor typically diagnose this and then go on to treat it? What are the common treatments for FIO? So the, the, the quickest thing to do would be to get a blood test and the, you would be looking for what are called plasma metanephrines. Um, that's a big word, but everyone's heard of adrenaline and, and many people have heard of noradrenaline, which is sort of its counterpart. That metanephrines is a catch-all term for both of those two things. So it's measuring essentially those two things in the bloodstream. And um, you can also measure them in the urine. So as we kind of talked about, there are these episodic secretions of these things. So you can actually miss the diagnosis if you're just getting one blood, one, one blood sample. So um, if you're getting a 24-hour urine collection, um, that's a little bit more sensitive of a test for trying to, trying to figure out um, if there might be a, a pheochromocytoma. After that, uh, often if it hadn't already been done, a CAT scan or an MRI is done to look for a tumor on the adrenal gland. And then those two things pretty much seal the diagnosis. If you have abnormally high levels of adrenaline in your bloodstream or in your urine, plus a, uh, a tumor on your adrenal gland, um, that's, there's not many other things that would cause that. Okay. And then how does it typically get treated? Is surgery always needed or what is, what does the treatment look like for this? The, the gold standard is surgery. There are about 10% of, um, and, and a lot of times these are certain genetic mutations, which we can, we can get into a, a little bit later, but um, there are um, uh, certain types of field that can act like a cancer almost. And so they can sort of spread outside the primary area. And if it's done that, then there are medical ways that, that it can be treated um, that can sort of minimize some of the symptoms that people are having. But if there's one isolated pheochromocytoma, which is by far the most common in the adrenal gland, uh, and presuming the other adrenal gland is normal, you have two, so you're sort of you know sort of fortunate in that way. Um, you can remove one and, and live just fine. Then the treatment would be removal of the abnormal adrenal gland. Okay. As a doctor for patients and caregivers regarding feel, what advice do you have for them in terms of what questions should be asked? They be asking their doctor. Should they be asking their doctor to to test for this if they have certain symptoms? What advice or perspective can you share on that? I think if you're if you're very young, like in your twenties or thirties, and and there isn't really been that much of a history of high blood pressure. Um, and you happen to develop high blood pressure that's a little bit difficult to control, it would be a good idea to talk to your doctor about maybe checking the adrenal gland. There's, in addition to pheochromocytoma, there's a tumor of the cortex, which is the outside part of the adrenal gland, um, that can produce a hormone that can also give you high blood pressure. So those are two things that you might want to think about, particularly if you're developing a high blood pressure type situation as a young person. I think the other, the other piece is if you, if you have a pheochromocytoma, it's really important to, because they're, they're uncommon, to be in a place that has a, a, a strong team. 
Um, and I, I'm very fortunate at UConn that the endocrine neoplasia team is fantastic. Um, Dr. Tendler, who was mentioned before, Dr. Malkoff, Dr. Vaderi, we very much work as a team because I, I, they, they do what they do um, in much more smooth a way than I could do. And I can do things that, that they're not trained to do. So, so I think that that's a really important aspect. One of the things that, that Michael touched on in surgery for pheochromocytoma is that um, you sort of have to block that fight or flight hormone surge before you do surgery. He had a little bit of a unique situation where the, the tumor actually bled sort of inside itself. And that caused a sort of a rush and a release of, um, of these hormones that gave him these, the, the attacks that he was having. Fortunately, it stayed contained within the adrenal gland. There wasn't bleeding inside the abdomen, um, but that was a little bit of a unique feature, but it sort of gets at what happens when you manipulate these tumors. So surgically, you have to move the tumor around a little bit to find the blood supply and basically seal off the blood supply before you take it out. And if you do that before you block the hormone synthesis, then you can have these very high spikes in blood pressure um, and that can be quite dangerous. People can have strokes and that sort of thing um, during the operation by manipulating the, the tumor. Um, so it's important to have an anesthesia team who's familiar with pheochromocytoma and can manage those expected uh, blood pressure spikes. Um, the medicines that we put people on actually, so metyrosine is one that, that Michael mentioned, it's a medicine that actually blocks the synthesis of adrenaline and noradrenaline. And so the reason that he and everyone else who's on it feels like crap for lack of a better word um, is because you don't have the get up and go anymore. I mean, it's completely gone. And, and that's by design because we don't want there to be a lot of that around, but it's not an easy medication to be on because you sort of just feel lackadaisical. And then we also block the receptors that would respond to the surges and cause the high blood pressure. Those are all very important things to do before surgery and to have a team that is adept at managing that preoperative preparation is really important. Thank you. Lastly, is there anything else that you'd like to share in general about pheochromocytoma? It's a rare disease. I, I really appreciate Michael's willingness to come on and share his story. It, it's, um, it's, it's a unique story in, in a lot of respects, um, but I, I think if you talk to people with pheochromocytoma, you would hear similar themes that something was going on. They weren't quite sure. Maybe they ignored it a little bit. Maybe the, the physicians um, that they were seeing were not, you know, were attributing it to other more common causes, which is no fault of them because that common things are common. I think that that's a, that's a fairly common thread. Um, there are resources out there. There is the FIOPAIR Alliance that um, Michael mentioned, um, which provides support and also a lot of in, uh, high quality information. Um, obviously, the Urology Care Foundation, urologyhealth.org, has a lot of great uh, resources uh, for adrenal disorders. I just was involved, um, I mentioned Dr. Kudikoff, who was one of my mentors. I was involved in a project to help uh, assist uh, physicians and anyone caring for um, patients with adrenal disorders um, in creating a website called adrenalmass.org, where basically providers can go and they can have an easy 
you know, one page, here's what you do when you see a patient with XYZ. Um, so those are all really great resources that are available on the internet um, where you can look and learn uh, about adrenal disorders and pheochromocytoma. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that information. We're now here with Michael and Dr. Rastow for our Ask the Expert segment, which is designed to highlight patient questions. So Michael, I will hand it over to you. Oh, thank you. Hi, doctor. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks. Good. So am I. Thanks to you. Um, probably my first question is, what is my prognosis for the future? I've gotten through all of this and I've done everything that uh, you said I needed to do. Will this come back again? What are the odds of that? And what's my long-term prognosis? Uh, I would say that your long-term prognosis is excellent. You had a, a complete removal of the, of the pheochromocytoma. There was really no evidence that it was invading any of the structures around the adrenal gland, which would perhaps portend a more aggressive biology of the tumor. You've subsequently had PET scans uh, to look basically to see if there are any other sites of disease, and those have all been normal, fortunately, uh, as have been your, um, your hormone levels uh, when we check those. There's not really been any family history of this that you're aware of, and you certainly did not have any high-risk genetic mutations when we looked at it. So I think all of those things are very much going in your favor um, for a, a low likelihood of recurrence in the future. Great. Thank you. You had touched a little bit on, you know, how to educate the, the medical community. And of course, our discussion is doing that as well, uh, which is wonderful. But is there anything that a doctor or a cardiologist or some of the people that I talked to during my journey that they could do in order to be more aware of pheochromocytoma? I think it takes a high, just a high index of suspicion and, and sort of a questioning attitude. If the things that you're hearing uh, someone tell you just aren't making sense or maybe make an antenna go up from back when you were in medical school, hearing about uh, some of the zebras that we, we hear about in medical school, trust that instinct. I, I would also give a credit to you because you are very articulate and, and clear and able to tell your story. Um, and, and that is actually really helpful because if you're able to articulate exactly what it is that you're feeling, some of those words that you chose probably triggered some memories about pheochromocytoma, and that is what led to um, the suspicion and making the diagnosis. So I think a, the combination of a high index of suspicion uh, and also um, being able to articulate the symptoms that you're having are, are very important. Right. Okay, thank you. How could I have been a better patient? I go through our time together, and it was a lot of time, doctor. And I always am trying to think of how I could have been a better patient to serve you as the person that was controlling my destiny in all of this. And uh, what's a good patient? Uh, my gosh, uh, I think you are a wonderful patient. The, the stuff you went through was extremely challenging. It's really hard to be in a hospital and outside of your normal environment, uh, scared and on drugs that don't make you feel like yourself with a tumor that doesn't make you feel like yourself. So I, I think you did basically all the right things. You asked important questions. Um, you sort of 
allowed people to care for you, which I think is also an important aspect. Uh, it's hard to give up control, but we're able to develop a really good rapport between you and our endocrine team and me. And um, I think develop a, a certain trust uh, with each other. Um, and I think that that's probably the most important part, but my gosh, you went through a heck of a lot. So um, I, I guess all I would do is thank you for, for being a trooper. Well, and thank you for saving my life, as I have said to you several times, but it was a real honor and privilege to watch you work. Um, and I did watch you work. There were times when we were having conversations when I was, you know, definitely scared about what the, what the answers would be, but watching you navigate this um, very rare disease in a way that gave me confidence uh, that I was going to be okay was extraordinary. Um, you and your team, uh, because uh, there, there were others standing next to you uh, when you came into the room all the time. And uh, I, I got a real sense of teamwork that um, there were a lot of people taking care of me. And uh, that's what made the difference for me uh, in knowing that I wasn't going to give up, especially during that terrible attack period when I, I just thought, you know, I just didn't think I could continue on. So I do thank you for that. It really shows that a partnership between patient and doctor is critical to not only the emotional, but the physical health as well. You know, when it all works, it's really quite extraordinary to watch and witness. Well, thank you very much for that, Michael. I, I feel similarly. Michael and Dr. Rochelle, it was an absolute pleasure having both of you on our podcast today. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks so thank much, you. Simone. Thank you so much. This podcast has been brought to you by the Urology Care Foundation, the official foundation of the American Urological Association. For more information on today's topic and for all things urology health, visit urologyhealth.org. That's urologyhealth.org.